Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs and projects done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way, and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good and then a bang in the night and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home and I can tell you, I know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Hey guys, welcome back to Thick and Thin with me, Katie Bilotti. Hope you guys are all doing well. I just got back from a trip to Italy, actually, and this is the first that I'm speaking of it because I had to keep it under wraps. I briefly mentioned on Instagram that I was going to Italy, but I couldn't disclose like any sort of details about why I was there or where I was going specifically. Italy is a huge place. So like, where was I actually going? What was I doing? So I think when this episode goes live, I will be clear to talk about it. Hopefully I am because I'm going to talk about it now, but essentially it was a work trip. So I went with a wine brand and interestingly, they didn't choose for me to go to Italy. Like they essentially said, I can go anywhere as long as I could, you know, give them a good narrative or like a story that I would tell surrounding the place I was going to. So I'm not going to fully delve into the content that I created because I want you guys to be able to experience it without me spoiling it. But it's over on Instagram. I went with this wine brand called Unshackled and they essentially were like, you can go anywhere you want and bring a friend, which just, you know, 
it is a dream. I feel so extremely lucky to have been able to do that and like get that opportunity. So I took my friend Colby. We went to Lake Como in Italy for six days technically, but it ended up being more like four days because of the travel days involved with going to Europe from the US. But it was really, honestly, a dream. I can't even really put it fully into words. It was just a magical, magical place. I'd seen photos on Pinterest and like, you know, people have posted videos on TikTok of them going to Lake Como. And I'd known that it was going to be beautiful, but I didn't know just how calm it is there, how relaxed. I've been to other Italian beachy towns like Amalfi Coast and, you know, like Capri, Positano, like a whole lot of it. And I feel like it's so chaotic. I mean, granted, I went in the fall to those places, which is a different, you know, tourist season. And this was a technically their off season or just before they really open for tourists. We were actually the second people to check into our hotel for the season. So we were definitely on the early side. And it wasn't even that warm, to be honest with you. It was kind of like 58 to 64, like that range the whole time we were there, which was great because we just like wore layers and it was fabulous. But I just felt like it was just a different sort of place than the other beachy towns I've been to in Europe as a whole. It just had this like this peace about it, very calm energy. Everyone there, like the locals were so just warm and kind. And oh, I just loved it. I will definitely be going back. We primarily spent time in Menaggio, but we also, we took this like very lengthy boat tour of pretty much the whole lake, like not the whole lake, but it's huge. But all of these like different towns and villas on the lake, we took a four and a half hour boat cruise and went, we actually ended up getting off the boat and walked around Bellagio, which people told us to do. I read extensive travel guides on the internet trying to figure out what to do. And honestly, I can probably say we did it right. Like everything we did was so great. And yeah, I'm posting a vlog about it as well. I'm posting on Instagram once I get approved to do so. And lots of great content from Italy. I had such an amazing time. And, you know, it's just proving how crazy I am because I went on that trip. Well, first I went to Turks, Turks and Caicos, then came back for like a few days, then went to Italy on this work trip. Now I'm back. And of course, I'm moving, moving apartments, moving from one neighborhood to another here in the city in just three days. So there's that. <laughs> We're moving. Then once I'm situated in the new apartment for like a few days, I'm gearing up to go on another trip at the end of the month to Cabo. So there's that. I've been planning this Cabo trip for months all the other trips I've gone on recently have been very, very spontaneous. I don't know what March had up its sleeve, but it's been really amazing, but also just a lot. I'm thrilled to stay put in April because I certainly am going to need it after all this travel, but very excited about it all. It's very cool to get out of your comfort zone, go somewhere new. And I think the most exciting part of it all has been just the food. Like <laughs> the food in Italy was so good. The food in like Como was so good and so different than all of my other travels to Italian places. Like it's just amazing to experience a new culture. And though I will say I'm very much a homebody and I appreciate being home more than anything, it's good to get yourself out of your comfort zone. So I'm glad that I'm doing that. I mean, granted, Cabo I've been to before, but... Still, it's going to be fun. I'm going with a bunch of the girls. 
the influencery girls that I went on the trip with last year. We're doing a rerun. We're running it back because we loved it so much last year. So it's going to be good to hang with them. And I was telling this guy on a date last night that I was like, yeah, I'm going on this trip to Cabo and I'm going with these girls who do what I do. And he's like, oh, so coworkers? I'm like, is that what you'd consider it? <laughs> like, <laughs> Are they my coworkers? Danielle, Brooke, Margot, Kenzie, my coworkers? I guess. Okay. That's if you want to call it that, it's a work trip. Call it a work trip. That's a write off. Anyway, that is just a little life update for you guys. March has been a crazy month. Lots of changes coming. Personally, also business wise, I have some ideas and ways I'm going to shift things around. So stay tuned for all of that. But today, you came here for a podcast, you came here for a story, and I am going to deliver exactly that. So there I was in Italy last week. The time difference was so crazy. I was getting like all these emails that I usually get first thing in the morning, like middle of the day. So we were actually in between like one activity at the hotel and just laying down for a minute, like recharging before we were going to a reservation. And I got this ping in my inbox from the New York Times. I'm subscribed to the New York Times. I get their emails every morning whenever they drop a new story or, you know, if you subscribe, you know, they honestly just send you like all these updates all the time. And I don't have the heart to archive or like to um, redirect them because I actually do like to see most of what they have have to push out or what they want me to, to read. And I saw this article in my inbox last week and it said this, like the beginning part that really drew me in said, bit by bit, floor by floor, the building that once rose 22 stories over Penn Station is shrinking before the city's very eyes. The black netting draped over its ever diminishing brick is like a magician's handkerchief. Once removed, it will reveal nothing. And this, it really piqued my interest. I mean, obviously being a New Yorker and just I'll get into the fact that I actually had no idea what this place even was, but I kept reading and it said, behold, the great disappearing act of the Hotel Pennsylvania. This isn't or wasn't just any building. This was once the largest hotel on earth with 2,200 rooms, shops, restaurants, and its own newspaper. And embarrassingly or very tellingly, considering its ultimate demise, I've never heard of this hotel the Hotel Pennsylvania. I live in Manhattan. I have for four years. The hotel's been in Manhattan up until 2020, but I'd never heard of it. I probably walked by it. Like, that's the thing. I definitely walked by this place and I just had no idea, A, the significance, or B, it just didn't register with me that this was an iconic place. But fear not, the episode is not dedicated to this random hotel that closed, but it is the setting of our story today. So bear with me. Here's a little bit, like in short, a story to set the stage for the episode. That This iconic hotel in Midtown Manhattan, the Hotel Pennsylvania. Fast forward to 2023 where I'm sitting right now. It has already closed its doors as of 2020 and it will not reopen. The pandemic really hit it hard. And also just even prior to that years of narrowly avoiding the chopping block. But in its prime, the Hotel Pennsylvania in Manhattan was described as a city within a city because of how large, extensive, and full of experiences and stories that it was. It was in the perfect location. It was right across from Madison Square Garden and Penn Station, so it was the perfect stop for travelers and concert goers alike. 
And to back things up even further, the iconic hotel was built by the Pennsylvania Railroad, which makes sense given the name Hotel Pennsylvania, and was operated by Ellsworth Statler, who was an American hotel businessman. And Ellsworth Statler made himself quite a reputation for being a good boss. I Googled him and this is all that really was said. I mean, he had this like amazing story that I'm not going to delve deeply into, but he was actually the first hotelier to give employees a six-day work week. So they automatically get a day off, I guess. I think maybe that's standard or not standard, but at the time, maybe it wasn't. Six-day work week, paid vacations, and free health service. And he also devised a profit-sharing plan for his employees. So why am I telling you guys about this guy, Ellsworth Statler? Well, so like I said, it was operated by Ellsworth, the hotel, but then eventually 28 years after they opened their doors, they opened their doors on January 25th, 1919, 28-ish, 27-ish years later on June 30th, 1948, Statler Hotels, which you know, of Ellsworth Statler. His group was called Statler Hotels. They acquired the property outright. They essentially bought it from the Pennsylvania Railroad and renamed it the Hotel Statler on January 1st, 1949. And this is important for our story. That's why I'm telling you guys this. So it was Hotel Statler until 1991 when the hotel turned over again and the new owners returned it to its original name, Hotel Pennsylvania. So today... I mean, obviously, it's not open anymore, but a few years ago in 2020, you would see it be Hotel Pennsylvania, but for a large chunk of history, it was called Hotel Statler. Okay, that's all you need to know about that. But to give you guys a visual of this iconic, massive Hotel Pennsylvania, in the 1920s, so when it was kind of at its prime, there was this crime boss named Johnny Jack Nunez, and he threw... Granted, this is the 20s, so think about how much money this is. He threw a $40,000 party in the 20s at the Hotel Pennsylvania. And also, mind you, this was like the Prohibition era, so it was definitely like a totally illegal party. Among the guests were silent film stars Clara Bow and Nancy Carroll, who were said to have bathed in tubs of champagne. So this is something that would happen often at this hotel, just like these lavish, crazy parties. Hotel guests would be running around barefoot, jumping on tables. Like it was always just a really chaotic, but very glittering, very interesting sort of scene at the Hotel Pennsylvania. And I would just have died to go to a party there. I feel like everything I'm reading just sounds amazing. The hotel's fame grew through the 30s with musical broadcasts from the cozy Manhattan Room on the lower level and later Cafe Rouge on the first floor where the NBC announcer used to say, the young at heart come from far and near. So it was definitely the place to be for the youngins. And in 1963, a small mountain was erected in the ballroom of Hotel Pennsylvania for a skiing demonstration. So this hotel had all the glitz and glam and stories galore up until it lost popularity in the 90s and just continued to tank into the 2000s. And now, like I said, it's being demolished. And with it, decades of secrets. And one of the biggest secrets, and still a mystery today, is that of the events of November 28th, 1953, at Hotel Statler, as it was known at the time, also known as Hotel Pennsylvania, like I just said. And that is what we're going to talk about today. 
November 28th, 1953, the crazy events of that day that people are still puzzled about, and the wild stories surrounding what actually happened, or most people think to this day. So yeah, pretty much to back up and like, where did I come up with this? While I was reading about the Hotel Pennsylvania in that Times article, I essentially launched myself into a mission of figuring out some interesting stories about the hotel because just based on the little things I was reading about what had gone on there, I'm like, there must have been like some major bombshell situation that happened there, like one of the days in its years and years and years of its prime. And that brought me to this story. And it's equal parts interesting and equal parts tragic. So I do want to prepare you for that. It is a little bit dark, but let's go back to 1953 and see how it unfolded. Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs and projects done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home. And then there's a version of it where you have someone help you. You watch them do it the right way. And you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good and then a bang in the night and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home and I can tell you, I know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. So, just before dawn, on a cold November morning, shards of glass shattered and shot through the sky high above 7th Avenue. And then, a few moments later, a body hit the sidewalk. Jimmy, the doorman at the Statler Hotel, was stunned. Then he turned and ran into the hotel lobby. We got a jumper, he shouted. We got a jumper. Armand Pastor, who was the hotel night manager, rushed outside to find a man laying on the pavement, eyes wide open, looking straight at him, trying to tell him something. He was definitely trying to speak, but there was nothing coming out but grumbles. And then he stopped moving altogether. Armand quickly looked up through the darkness of the massive hotel, trying to figure out where this guy had come from. He noted that a curtain was flapping through an open window, and it turned out to be room 1018A. When he looked, two names were on the registration card for that room, Frank Olson and Robert Lashbrook. Police officers entered room 1018A with guns drawn, 
They saw no one. And of course, the window was open, like it was shattered open. It wasn't actually just opened, which we'll get to. So they pushed open the door to the bathroom. They were looking around trying to find any source of where this guy had come from and found Robert Lashbrook sitting on the toilet, head in his hands. He wasn't dead. He was just sleeping, he says. I heard a noise and then I woke up, Robert said. The man that went out the window, what was his name? One of the officers asked him. Olson, he said, Frank Olson. In all my years in the hotel business, Armand, the night manager later said, I'd never encountered a case where someone got up in the middle of the night, ran across a dark room in his underwear, avoiding two beds, and dove through a closed window with the shade and curtains drawn. Like, imagine diving through a closed window. I mean, obviously, people do certain things when they feel desperate, but diving through a closed window like head first and just how does one do that or even consider doing that anyway so that was what was going through Armand the night manager's head so he walked around the room to look around no one ever jumps through a window he thought they open the window they go out they don't dash through a shade and a sheer drape you know there's no sense to that he said Leaving the police officers at the scene of the crime, the hotel night manager, Armand, returned to the lobby and on a hunch, he asked the telephone operator if any calls had recently been made from room 1018A. Mind you, this was the time where operators took and transferred calls and the operator said yes and she had eavesdropped. Not an uncommon thing in this time when hotel phone calls were routed through a switchboard. Oh, what a time to be alive. (laughs) So someone in the room had apparently called a number on Long Island, which was listed as belonging to a Dr. Harold Abramson, who was well-known as a distinguished physician, less well-known as an LSD expert, yes, LSD the drug, and one of the CIA's medical collaborators. According to an article by The Guardian, which did an incredible job outlining this entire story, I'll have it linked in the show notes, they said, To the first police officers that arrived on the scene, this seemed like another one of the human tragedies they saw too often. A distressed or distraught man had taken his own life. They could not have known that the dead man and the survivor were scientists who helped direct one of the U.S. government's most highly classified intelligence programs. According to Niels Olson, who was Frank Olson's son, Frank worked at Fort Dietrich in Maryland, actually, so it's where I'm from, headquarters for the military's Biological Warfare Research and Development Program, which also is known as germ warfare. And if you're not familiar with germ or biological warfare, it's essentially the use of things like toxins, infectious diseases, agents like bacteria, viruses, insects, fungi, with the intent to kill, harm, or incapacitate humans, animals, or plants as an act of war. And at one point, Frank actually worked alongside ex-Nazi scientists who had been brought to work on secret missions in the U.S. For a time, they worked on aerosol technologies, ways to spray germs or toxins on enemies and to defend against such attacks. And later, Frank met with American intelligence officers who had experimented with truth drugs in Europe. He regularly traveled to Fort Terry, a secret army base on Plum Island off the eastern tip of Long Island, which was used to test toxins too deadly to be brought onto the U.S. mainland. In his laboratory at Fort Detrick, Frank Olson directed experiments that involved gassing or poisoning laboratory animals. And 
These experiences, among many others, where they would literally torture people using germ warfare, like they would test it. They were testing and learning. And it was really starting to get to Frank. It was really starting to bother him, disturb him. And his son, Eric, later said that he'd come to work in the morning, Frank would, his dad, and see piles of dead monkeys. He said, that messes with you. He wasn't the right guy for that. Towards the end, the job was really getting to Frank. He told his wife and his family that he was going to quit for good. A few quotes from Niels, who was, like I said, Frank's son. Uh, Niels said, My father was a research scientist who was involved with germ warfare associated with the Special Operations Division. That was the most top-secret kind of research that was done out at Fort Detrick, and some of that research was being done in coordination with the CIA. And Neil said that two weeks before Frank's death, his father went to a three-day conference with some of his colleagues and came home a totally changed man. The weekend after that meeting, my father was severely depressed. He felt that he had done something terribly wrong. And he told my mother he had done something wrong, but he couldn't tell her what. And she asked him whether or not he had broken security. And he indicated that he would never do such a thing, but he felt that he had done something terribly wrong, which when I read that, gave me total full body chill goosebumps. I'm like, what could this guy have possibly done? And how did it end up with him shooting through a window and landing on the pavement? Like, it just doesn't make sense. But anyway, so the Olsons, the Olson family, was not told about Armand, the night hotel watchman's suspicions about the window, how odd the situation was of like, why would someone jump through a window and not open the window? They weren't told any of that. They were told simply that Frank had had a nervous breakdown and jumped out a window. And they believed that story for the next 22 years. Alex Olson, Frank's wife, did not object when she was told that given the horrible condition of her husband's body, given that he died in such a gruesome way, so they agreed on doing a closed casket funeral uh, because of that. And so she actually didn't end up even seeing her husband's body, like it was one of those things where you look back, you're like, hmm, maybe there was something fishy going on there, you know? And so they did the closed casket funeral. He was buried and that was where the case might have ended, but it did not. It's much, much murkier than a middle of the night suicide. So let's go back to what I said earlier. Earlier in the episode, I said that the stress, the intensity of the job, just how disturbing it was, was really getting to Frank and he was attempting to get out and quit. Well, this was in the back of his mind when he was invited to this three-day work retreat with some colleagues just before Thanksgiving in 1953. Frank received an invitation to gather on Wednesday, November 18th, so just before Thanksgiving, for this retreat at a cabin on Deep Creek Lake in Western Maryland, which is a really beautiful place, I must say. The retreat was one in a series that Sidney Gottlieb, who is one of Frank's colleagues and at the CIA, was known as the chief poison maker. Yes, you heard that right. This was something that he had decided to do with his friends, like with his coworkers, every few months. And so according to The Guardian, it was officially a coming together of two groups, four CIA scientists from the groups who were working on this top secret program called MK Ultra, which we'll talk a bit more about in a little bit, but it was essentially this top secret program of experiments in mind control that used doses of LSD to get information out of people. And 
So essentially, those scientists that were working on this LSD secret project were there on the retreat, and also five army scientists from the Special Operations Division of the Chemical Corps. So like nine people total. And technically speaking, they were from two different groups. But in reality, these guys worked so closely together that they were pretty much just like a friendly unit. Like they were friends. They were buddies getting together pretty much. It just made sense for them to hang out and discuss their projects and exchange ideas because they were under such security clearance or security. um, What do you, what do you call it? It's like they really couldn't tell anybody else. They couldn't tell their families about what they were working on. So they needed each other to kind of lean on. And they were able to do that in this relaxed, beautiful place, Deep Creek. And it was kind of like a work happy hour sort of thing, but like with top secret missions and like uh, germ warfare, which was terrifying stuff. So the first 24 hours at the retreat were chill and uneventful. And then on Thursday evening, the group gathered for dinner and then kicked back for a round of drinks. Robert Lashbrook, who was ringleader Sidney Gottlieb's deputy. So these two guys were kind of like at the helm of this Deep Creek Lake weekend found a bottle of orange liqueur, and Robert poured glasses for everyone. Several, including Frank, drank the orange liqueur that Robert poured, and after 20 minutes, Sidney Gottlieb asked if anyone was feeling odd. Several said that they were, and then Gottlieb then told everyone that had drank the orange liqueur that their drinks had been spiked with LSD. I read this and I'm like, oh my god, I would have freaked freaked out. Like imagine how you'd feel if you'd been unknowingly given LSD in the middle of nowhere alongside people who know and have done some torturous things. Like so what if they work in the government? Wouldn't you spiral? Like even if you are one of the people like the scientists that understand how LSD affects a person, like it would still freak you out to be given that without your knowledge or consent and then just expected to deal with it. Like that Oh my God, it would, I would lose it. And according to the sources I read, that's kind of how things went down. The news was not well received by the scientists who were drugged, apparently. Even in their altered state, the subjects, as they now were in this experiment, which is just bonkers, they could understand what had been done to them because they work with this stuff. They knew what would happen. But even though they knew this and understood it, they were really upset. Frank Olson was especially upset. According to his son, Eric, he became quite agitated and was having a serious confusion with separating reality from fantasy. Soon, though, Frank and the others who were drugged were carried away into a hallucinatory world. Sidney Gottlieb later reported that they were boisterous and laughing, unable to continue the meeting or engage in sensible conversations. The next morning, they were in only slightly better shape. The meeting was definitely over at this point. Frank Olson headed back home to his family, coming off of this LSD trip, but he would never be the same. By the time he arrived home, he was a changed man, his family said. So after the trip, after going home to his family, Frank goes back to work. He shows up early at Fort Detrick, and his boss, Vincent Rouet, arrived soon after. Neither of them were in good shape. It was more than four days that had gone by since they'd both been given LSD without their consent. And Vincent Rouet later called it the most frightening experience I have ever had or hoped to have. Like, imagine doing LSD by accident, first of all, like being part of an experiment without your knowledge, but also having to go through that with your boss. (laughs) Like, just so not okay on so many levels, but 
it happened to these guys. So anyway, Frank is in this office with his boss, Vincent, and he is just going on and on, venting out his doubts and his fears. He appeared to be agitated, Vincent said, and asked him if he should just fire him or he should quit. Like Frank was done. He wanted out. And he was like to Vincent, his boss, he's like, do you want to fire me or do you want me to just quit? Like, what would be better? Because I'm done. Like, I'm out. And so Vincent was trying to calm down Frank, assuring him that his work was excellent. He was doing just fine. He shouldn't quit. And slowly, Frank was persuaded that resigning was just too extreme. So he decided not to do it. And by this time, MK Ultra, that secret LSD mission that I had mentioned, had been underway for seven months. According to The Guardian, it was one of the government's deepest held secrets guarded by security that was, at, as Frank had been told when he first joined the Special Ops Division, was tighter than tight. Barely two dozen men knew what was really going on with this secret mission, MKUltra. Nine of those 12 had been at Deep Creek Lake on the retreat, and several of those nine had been dosed with LSD. So that happened. Now one of them was acting out of control, a.k.a. Frank, unstable. Frank was seeming like he might blab to the world all of the secrets and what was going on. He was going through it. He was stressed. He wanted out. And so naturally, this was worrisome because... You know, the guys that really believed in this mission really were worried that Frank was going to blow it for them. Because after all, Frank Olson, he knew a lot. He had spent 10 years at Fort Detrick, and he knew most, if not all, of the Special Ops Division's secrets. He knew all about MK Ultra, and perhaps the most threatening of all that Frank knew, if this was a hot buzz subject at the time in the 50s, if U.S. forces used germ warfare weapons during the Korean War— for which there is circumstantial evidence but no proof, Frank Olson would have definitely known. And so if Frank was unstable and was going to just run his mouth, share all the secrets of this MK Ultra mission as well as the Korean War, this was a very serious thing. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Frank's friend and colleague, Norman Coinire said he was very, very open and not scared to say what he thought. He did not give a damn. And that's what they were scared of, I'm sure. Five days had gone by after Frank was dosed with LSD, and he was still super disoriented. Like, it was technically out of his system by now, but he was not okay. So Vincent, Frank's boss, called Sidney Gottlieb, the guy who had initiated the whole Deep Creek Lake retreat, to report that Frank was not doing well. Gottlieb asked him to bring Frank Olson in for a chat. At their meeting, Gottlieb later testified that Olson seemed confused in certain areas of his thinking. So Sidney Gottlieb made a quick decision. Frank Olson must be taken to New York City and delivered to the physician most intimately tied to the MK Ultra, aka LSD secret mission, a man named Harold Abramson. Like he needed to get out, he needed to get help because this guy was unstable and it's a very serious thing when you're working with such top secret situations, you know? So Alice Olson, Frank's wife, was told that Harold Abramson was chosen because her husband had to see a physician who had equal security clearance so he could talk freely. So that is why 
Frank had to go to New York City, apparently. That was what Alice was told, which I guess makes sense. And it was actually partly true. Abramson was not a psychiatrist, but he was an MKUltra initiate. Gottlieb knew that Abramson was loyal to MKUltra, and that made him the perfect person to get into Frank Olson's inner mind, figure out where his loyalties were, was he going to blab? Olson told not doctor, but fake doctor, or I don't even know if he actually was a doctor, but he was not a psychiatrist. He told Abramson that ever since the Deep Creek Lake retreat, he had been unable to work well, he couldn't concentrate, he couldn't even remember how to spell correctly. He couldn't sleep. Like This guy was stressed out. Like Who knows what was actually going on chemically, but he was definitely going through it, stressed, probably a bit scared that people were after him. Like I don't know what he was going through, but Frank's son later said, one of the nights my father was up in New York, he was having delusions that he was hearing voices. And in the middle of the night, he woke up and went and threw all of his identification out and his money, like threw away his ID, threw away his money. And so Abramson's goal was to speak to Frank and try to reassure him, talk him off of the ledge, which is ironic considering what happened. So a week had passed since Olson was given LSD at Deep Creek Lake. He planned to go back home for Thanksgiving dinner. The day after seeing Abramson, accompanied by Lashbrook and his boss, Victor Rouet, Frank boarded a flight to Washington. An MK Ultra colleague was waiting when they landed. So this is like a tight security situation trying to get Frank to chill out. Rouet and Olson got out of the car and into this MK colleague's car for the drive to Frederick. Soon after they got into the car for the drive, Olson's mood completely switched. He asked that the car be stopped. He turned to his boss and announced that he felt too ashamed to see his wife and family because he was, quote, so mixed up. His boss suggested that he just go back to New York for another session with Dr. Abramson. He told Frank, don't go see your family. Let's get you help back in New York City. So despite the fact they had literally just touched down in Washington, he gets right back on the plane and goes back to, well, he went actually to Long Island. And there, Abramson spent about an hour with Frank Olson, followed by 20 minutes with Robert Lashbrook, and all seemed to be going well. The next morning, Abramson, Lashbrook, and Olson drove back to Manhattan, and during a session at his 58th Street office, Dr. Abramson persuaded Olson that he should just go be hospitalized. Like, he should check into a hospital as a voluntary patient at Maryland Sanatorium, and that was going to be the solution here. And actually, Frank agreed. He must have really thought that something was wrong with him, so he was like, sure, I will voluntarily check myself in to this sanatorium. Olson and Lashbrook then left the office and then checked in at the Statler Hotel and were given room 1018A. Over dinner at the Statler, Olson told Lashbrook that he was really looking forward to his hospitalization. He talks about all the books he was going to read and Lashbrook later said that he was almost the Dr. Olson I knew before the experiment. The two then went back to their shared room together, which is interesting that they shared a room, but I don't really know why. Maybe it was a thing at the time or just the way that things went with the CIA, but they shared like two twin beds in this room or had two. They had their own bed, but they were like in the same room. And Olson apparently washed his socks in the sink, watched TV for a while, and then laid down to go to bed. At 2.25 a.m., he shot through the window and landed on the pavement. 
If only Walls could talk, like what actually happened in room 1018A? Was Frank really disturbed enough to jump through a closed window to his death? Did someone push him out the window intentionally? Today, there are still so many question marks. Frank's own colleagues worked hard after the incident to cover everything up. They spoke to the investigating police detective, and together they concluded that Frank Olson had died from multiple fractures subsequent upon a jump or a fall. And this became the official and only narrative for 20 years. Like, they did not want to risk anything happening with their secret mission, and despite the fact that Frank you know, even if this was true, if he had decided to end his life, maybe because of the LSD trip and all the stuff that happened, like, wouldn't you think they would maybe pause their mission and be like, wow, this is a really serious thing. Like one of our ops just died because of something that we did potentially. No, no, no. They didn't stop at all. Like, they continued full steam and speed ahead with their mission. And that was it. Like he, that was it for 20 years. But then in 1975, a story broke. The Washington Post wrote a piece about an army scientist who had been drugged with LSD by the CIA, reacted badly, and jumped out of the window of a New York hotel. And it was sensational. For the next several days, reporters flooded the CIA with demands to know more. The Olson family called a press conference in their backyard, and Alice Olson, Frank's wife, read a statement saying that the family had decided to file a lawsuit against the CIA, perhaps within two weeks, asking several million dollars in damages. She insisted that her husband Frank had not acted irrational or sick during the last days of his life, but was very melancholy and said he was going to leave his job. Alarm bells went off at the White House after the Olson family decided to sue the CIA because, yeah, that would be something that alarm bells would sound for. President Ford, who was president at the time, his chief of staff, Donald Rumsfeld, and his deputy, Dick Cheney, recognized the danger in all of this and the potential for secrets to come out that they didn't want to come out. Cheney warned Rumsfeld in a memo that a lawsuit might force the CIA to disclose highly classified national security information. So he recommended, okay, maybe we should get ahead of this. Maybe President Ford should make a public statement and expression of regret and express a willingness to meet personally with Mrs. Olson and her kids. Like, just have President Ford talk to them and everything will be fine. Like, that was his goal. And so President Ford took his aide's advice. He invited Alice and her three now adult children to the White House. On July 21st, 1975, the Olson family met in the Oval Office. It was a unique historical moment. According to The Guardian, the only time an American president has ever summoned the family of a CIA officer who died violently and apologized on behalf of the U.S. government. Later, the family met with CIA Director William Colby at the agency's headquarters in Langley, Virginia, and William apologized for what he called a terrible thing that should never have happened. Some of our people were out of control in those days, Colby said. They went too far. There were problems of supervision and administration. So with all of this, this great display, it honestly seemed like they were taking accountability for what happened. And the White House lawyers actually offered the Olson family $750,000 in exchange for dropping the legal claims. Not nearly enough, in my opinion, considering they were trying to sue for multiple millions, but Alas, they decided to accept the money and went on with their lives, and Congress passed a special bill approving the payment, and that would have closed the case again if new information wasn't unearthed, literally. At Frank Olson's funeral, Sidney Gottlieb, you know, the guy who was 
the one that drugged Frank, had told grieving relatives that if they ever had questions about what happened, he would be happy to answer them, which is a really odd thing to say. But more than two decades later, at the end of 1984, the Olson family decided to finally take Sidney up on his offer and called to arrange a chat with him. When Alice, Eric, and Niels Olson appeared at Sidney's door, his first reaction was relief. I'm so happy you don't have a weapon, Sidney Gottlieb said. I had a dream last night that you all arrived at this door and shot me. So I don't know what to make of that. This guy is off his rocker. That's what I would have thought. But anyway, so Sidney Gottlieb began by telling the family what happened at Deep Creek Lake in November of 1953. And like I told you guys the whole story, Olson and the others were given LSD. He said as part of an experiment to see, quote, what would happen if a scientist were taken prisoner and drugged, would he divulge secret research and information? So I guess if you spin it that way, it's a test of loyalty. But I wonder if that was really the reason why they did it. Like, no one will really ever know why they decided to drug these scientists. But this is what Sidney Gottlieb told Eric. And he said, Your father and I were very much alike. We both got into this because of the patriotic feeling, but we both went a little too far and we did things that we probably should not have done. That gives me goosebumps. It sends goosebumps right up and down my spine because that seems like a confession to me. And that was as close to a confession as Sidney Gottlieb ever went. He would not say which specific parts of MKUltra went a little too far or what him and Frank did that they probably shouldn't have done. Like, one can only imagine, which is just, it's just sad. Like, come on, dude. I know that you have, like, the security thing, but come on. Like, this guy died, and it's kind of fishy. It's kind of fishy. So as the family were getting up to leave after meeting with Sidney Gottlieb, Sidney pulled Eric Olson, Frank's son, aside, and he said, "'You were obviously very troubled by your father's suicide.'" Have you ever considered getting into a therapy group for people whose parents have committed suicide? And like the way this is written, like it might not seem like a jab, but in the way that it was said, it was a jab. Like Eric, Frank's son, said that it really bothered him the way that he said it. And he said this, he said, I didn't have the confidence then in my skepticism to ignore his poise. But when he made that therapy group suggestion, that was the moment when he overplayed his hand. At that moment, I understood how much Gottlieb had a stake in diffusing me. And it was also at that moment that the determination to show that he had actually played a role in murdering my father was born. Eric Olson waited another decade until after his mother died, which was honestly pretty considerate of him, before exhuming his father's body to look for clues. Several reporters stood near Eric as the casket was raised in June of 1994. So mind you, The, quote, suicide happened in 1953. This is now 1994, and they still don't have answers. Like, that must be so frustrating, especially considering, like, the CIA is trying to cover everything up. So a forensic pathologist, James Stars, of George Washington University Law School, spent a month studying Frank Olson's body. When he was finished, he called a news conference. His test for toxins in Frank's body, he reported, had turned up nothing, which was interesting, but the wound pattern, however, was curious, he said. James Stars had found no glass shards on the victim's head or neck, which, if you think about it, this would actually, this would be expected considering he 
apparently dived through a window. Like most intriguingly, though, although Olson had been reported to have landed on his back, the skull above his left eye was disfigured. So think about it. If you land on your back, why would the front of your eye be altered. So a quote from the pathologist said, I would venture to say that this hematoma is singular evidence of the possibility that Dr. Olson was struck a stunning blow to the head by some person or instrument prior to his exiting through the window of room 1018A. Later, he was more emphatic. He said, I think Frank Olson was intentionally, deliberately, with malice aforethought, thrown out of that window. Wow. Stars also said the medical examiner in New York who had done an external examination back in 1953 said there were multiple lacerations on the face and neck. At some point, he had to have hit some glass. I cannot believe that he wouldn't have gotten cuts in the lower extremities of his body on the front of the legs. We didn't find any cuts. Oof. Like this makes me think that maybe the CIA covered that up or like worked with the medical examiner to fabricate these cuts that didn't actually exist. Like this just, it's getting spooky, guys. It's getting spooky. It's getting, oh my God, who done it? That is how I feel at this point in the story. Because Frank Olson's family signed away the right to legal relief when they accepted that $750,000 compensation payment in 1975, they couldn't sue the CIA. Even with this new information, with this new hunch, they couldn't do anything in terms of suing over it, which is so upsetting. Though Starr's report and other discoveries, quote, sharpened Eric's already powerful suspicion that foul play was the reason for his father's death. He just couldn't prove it, which is so frustrating. Like there just isn't proof and it's just been too long since and no one's talking and it's the CIA you're dealing with. It's not like some random civilian crime. It's like the CIA. So Frank's sons soon realized that there was really nothing that they could do about it, like nothing that was going to once and for all prove that their father had died by foul play. So they decided that it was finally time to rebury their father's body. So in August of 2002, the day before they were going to rebury the body, Eric decided to call the reporters to his house and told them that he had reached a new conclusion about what had happened to his father. The death of Frank Olson on November 28, 1953, was a murder, not a suicide, he declared. This is not an LSD drug experiment story as it was represented in 1975. This is a biological warfare story. Frank Olson did not die because he was an experimental guinea pig who experienced a, quote, bad trip. He died because of concern that he would divulge information concerning a highly classified CIA interrogation program in the early 50s and concerning the use of biological weapons by the U.S. in the Korean War. So he essentially said he's like, my father, though he was a scientist who worked on germ warfare, he was a victim of germ warfare in the end. Like that is what ended up happening. That is what Eric and his brother think to be true. And honestly, I'm starting to feel that way too, reading like, you know, letting the full story unfold. Like this guy, this this might have been something fishy. And like I said in the very beginning, it's still not proven. So we don't know. But it makes you think, right? So in 2017, Stephen Sirocco, a retired New York assistant district attorney who had investigated the Olson case and remained interested in it, made his first visit to the hotel room where Olson spent his final evening. Looking around the room, Sirocco said, 
raised the question of how Olson could have done it. If this would have been a suicide, it would have been very difficult to accomplish, he concluded. There was motive to kill him. He knew the deepest, darkest secrets of the Cold War. Would the American government kill an American citizen who was a scientist who was working for the CIA and the army if they thought he was a security risk? There are people who say, definitely. Errol Morris explored the case in his 2018 Netflix miniseries, Wormwood, and award-winning former New York Times reporter Stephen Kinzer addressed the case in his 2019 best-selling Poisoner-in-Chief, a biography of Sidney Gottlieb, Frank Olson's CIA boss. Olson's death remains officially classified as, quote, undetermined, but all the evidence now points towards murder, and none of it points away, it's been said. So, yeah. It just is an interesting story, very sad, and such a huge question mark, like no one will ever know what truly happened. And the hotel where this all went down is no more, and it took the secrets of what happened that fateful day in 1953 with it. So really spooky, makes you think. Definitely check out Wormwood. I watched a little bit of it um, in preparation for this episode. It's really well done. Very good storytelling. It's on Netflix, so check it out. And thank you guys for listening to this episode. I will talk to you all next week. And that's a wrap. Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs and projects done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way, and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good, and then a bang in the night, and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home, and I can tell you... I know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.